Welcome to NFT Sundays, a weekly conversation around art and technology, brought to you by Dementi and the Museum of Crypto Art. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of NFT Sundays. I am Colborn Bell, the Museum of Crypto Art, uh, and I am with critic and commentator Kevin Beist. Uh Welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. And of course, we have to thank the lovely Dementi team for putting us together. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks for thanks for reaching out. Really happy to uh, happy to do this. Well, over here we are big fans of your work. It is rare uh, to see such commentary, uh, poignant commentary on the space, well researched and in depth. So, you know, I'm I'm going to just turn it over to you and ask you know anything you would like to share about yourself. Uh, what intrigued you about the space and, and how you got here? My, my background in art is is mainly in, like most of my career has been spent in public art. So uh, for over a decade before the pandemic, um, in the before times, I was the artistic director for this um, organization in Michigan called Art Prize, which was a, um, a large public art event, which used uh, juried prizes as well as public vote prizes to kind of animate this, this um, this huge public art festival. So it was like tons of artists from all over the world. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it was, it was even though it was uh, public art and, um, you know, kind of, you know, artists community engagement in many ways and placemaking, uh, it was very much infused with technology because the, the public vote portion of, um, of the entire, uh, process was enabled by proprietary uh, smartphone apps that we had created. And this is all starting in like 2009. So it was like in the early days of social media, there was just this, uh, you know, tremendous interest in how can the internet democratize um, access to, uh, to art and to culture and, you know, like sort of, you know, what can the social web do, right? As a, as a tool, web 2.0, right? Is what we, as what we all called it back then. And, you know, it's a coincidence, but I feel like it's a meaningful coincidence that Art Prize launched in 2009, the exact same week that Kickstarter launched. And I, I only say that because it was like, and there are different projects, of course, but they were, it was very much like in the air at the time of like, what can the uh, internet do to empower artists? And what can the internet do to connect artists and audiences? Um, you know, we made a big art event. Kickstarter obviously made a way to like finance projects, um, which are different outcomes, but it was a similar kind of thing where it was like, the, the technology was reaching this point where it was starting to have all these really interesting applications. So, so I've been thinking about art and technology for a long time and um, the pandemic happened, um, you know, our prize's whole bread and butter was drawing like half a million people to, to Grand Rapids, Michigan for two and a half weeks. Suddenly with the pandemic drawing large crowds was, was precarious and dangerous and, and plunged us into this huge unknown. So the whole thing just like, hit a hard stop, paused. Uh, at that time, I felt like this is a good chance for me to look for something else to do. So I took a different position um, with a design, uh, a design marketing and video production firm. And so I do client relation and design strategy stuff um, as my day job now, which I like a lot. And sometimes it intersects with contemporary art. But in that time, you know, just being sort of cooped up in my house <laughs> in, the, in the pandemic, spending too much time on the internet, uh, you know, a, a little more than a year ago, I started seeing people talking about NFTs and, and crypto in new ways and, and 
this conversation around Web3. And it really reminded me of these conversations that happened a decade earlier about Web 2.0. And, and so some of the stuff I was seeing was just like ridiculously optimistic about how this is going to empower artists and, and it's the best thing since sliced bread. And I was kind of, I had this immediate like, whoa, 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 I've heard this before. Um, it, it didn't work out as well as like everybody thought, or it had a bunch of weird um, secondary effects that nobody um, saw coming. And so that just interested me in the, in the space. And so I was like, um, you know, like the whole Beeple sale thing happened about a year ago. And I was just tweeting about that and making observations about it. And then an editor from Art Forum reached out to me and was like, saw what you were writing about that. We're like, will you just write an article explaining like, what the hell is an NFT? Who is Beeple? What is the sale? Like art world people are like interested now and they're confused. And so I was like, sure. So I wrote a thing for Art Forum about it, which was a, a fun opportunity. And that sort of, uh, and obviously it was like, wow, it's cool that they reached out to me, but I also felt like I'm not as much of an expert as maybe they think. So I, I sort of, at that point, immediately did this like crash course deep dive into research because I felt like if I was going to be writing about it, I needed to actually know what I was saying. So at that point, I, I, I became pretty interested in all of it. And then I've uh, just kind of been following it all since. And I've been, you know, writing uh, mostly for Outland, which I think is a really great outlet. And I've been talking to other editors as well. And I have a couple things kind of in the pipe for uh, some other outlets, which you know, hopefully will 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 surface pretty soon. But but for now, um, Outland is a really great, really great resource. And I I kind of see the space as like there's this really interesting opening where there are people who are thinking critically about it, but they're so negative that they're actually like they sort of like um, truncate their own possibility for observation and learning because they've already drawn conclusions that are so overwhelmingly negative. And then on the other side, there are people who are thinking in a similar way, but it's just their observations are so positive that they've, that, that they've similarly, similarly sort of muted their critical faculties to the point where they can't learn anything new because they're so convinced it's so great. And so I saw that and I was like, there's a lot of space in the middle here that's just not being occupied with people like, um, really thinking seriously about what's happening and not being convinced that it's evil and also not being convinced that it's like the best thing ever to have to happen. Right. And, and I have to add, you know, I think there is that nefarious third group that falls under the, the guise of endless optimism. Uh, but it's really just trying to sell and market digital garbage. Um, oh, yeah. There's obviously a lot to unpack there and a lot that interests um, me and I'm, and I'm sure people here as well, like, you know, our work, and I think a lot of the people in the beginning, it was really, this was like a public art adventure, right? The idea was that this was shareable art, you know, and there was more of a, a patronage model, which would encourage people to make more art. Uh, there was no like expensive dollar sign value to these things, but most people were taking just kind of, at least the, the artists were taking enough to continue to create. Right. Um and it was perhaps, you know, really that people moment where it became a market, um, where it became just a rampant market. Uh, and, you know, hype and speculation, perhaps in the interest of driving people to digital art is interesting. But when the art itself becomes the good, uh, I think we lose a lot of that. And just to bring it home, I think, you know, one of your articles, especially on PFPs, speaks yeah. m more about the idea of this being a, a gated community. Um, 
And I'm just kind of curious on your your thoughts about that and where, I guess, I mean, what is your hope for the idea of public arts in this space? And do you think NFTs can achieve that? Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah I, I think at first there's not an obvious connection between um, NFTs and public art. I mean, obviously, um, NFTs are driven by private collections. Um, they're mostly seen in these sort of private, intimate, screen-mediated ways, uh, which is a totally different way, obviously, than going to like a park and seeing a, a giant steel sculpture or something. So like on the surface, um, you know, public art and, and NFTs are like, almost seem like polar opposites this this thing i wrote which i think that i think that you're referencing um for for outland was uh comparing pfp projects to this public health phenomenon which was yeah which was a big deal like 20 years ago called cow parade it was it kind of blew up in chicago i think in like 1999 or something um and it was like this idea of like these these uh fiberglass cows life-size fiberglass cows and the forms were all the same. And then they would get local artists from different cities to like paint the cows and then they would auction them off for charity and stuff like that. And the whole thing is like, it, it was kind of a, an early example of public art as placemaking slash economic development scheme. And so the idea was you put these cows and then other cities did other animals. Like in Grand Rapids, we have a river, obviously it's called Grand Rapids. So we did fish you know they didn't look good but you know, whatever there's fish all over the place and, and different I mean, local you, artists would i would them. encourage everybody to go look at that tina turner manatee because yeah you know, that- <laughs> yeah yeah i saw much in the, in the uh yeah in the um when it was writing the article i was just taking this deep dive but yeah jacksonville florida did manatee of course um but but yeah so it was like it was just it was this weird thing because it's like yes it's supporting artists but um but really it's this kind of like I don't know, to, to be crass about it, like a bait and switch economic development um, uh, project where it's like, yeah, come look at the manatees or the fish or the cows, but really then stop for a drink and get a meal and then go shopping. And it's really about like downtown rev- revitalization and sort of using the arts as this kind of siren song to what really matters, which is which is like economic development. Money. And I think that um, a lot of NFT PFPs work in this, a similar way. They have a lot of formal qualities that are similar where it's like the form repeats over and over and over again. So there's something like comforting about like the repeated structure, but then the details change. And so you're kind of like, ooh, but this one has this and this one has cool sunglasses. And then this one has, you know, like and like the all the PFP projects work the same way as well. Right. It's like car- cartoon animals, which is like, you know, either it's going to sell you cereal or it's going to sell you um an NFT, right? Like we love car- cartoon animals and <laughs> we, uh, people always have. Um, and then also it, it's, it's the same thing where it's like, it's an economic development scheme because it's a way of um, kind of luring or welcoming, however you, however you want to think about it, people into um, a new economic environment, which in the case of Cal Parade, that's come downtown because there's restaurants and stuff here and you don't need to be scared. You know what I mean? I mean, part of like Cal Parade in the late nineties, early two thousands is like, trying to and you know the some of the public stuff art stuff that i was a part of previously it was like trying to get suburban people with money to re-engage in downtown environments which mm. if, if you're in new york or other places it's like they've that's there it's true but it's also like in larger denser cities that's like it's not as much of an issue but in mid-sized cities it was like a lot of the 80s and 70s 80s and 90s was the story of like just hollowing out downtown cores and then now in the 2000s it's like stuff is happening there again. And so 
people have like this tremendous challenge to get people from the suburbs with money to come back down with their wallets and like do stuff. Uh, and the arts get, get sort of roped into this. And so, I don't know. So I sort of saw this parallel with like, um, you know, the, the attractive cartoons of, of, of PFPs welcoming people into web three and metaverses, because if you want one of these things, if you want to be um, like Jimmy Fallon or Paris Hilton, and you want your own <laughs> uh, board ape or second, second rate board ape knockoff or whatever, you have to set up a crypto wallet, right? Like, so that's yeah. sort of like the, the metaverse analog of um, going downtown, finding a parking space, doing it you know what i mean like and then once you cross that like once you're like oh it's not so bad i'm here i did it then suddenly it's like it's there for you right and that's great and it's obviously i want people to um you know re-engage in the downtowns of their cities i think that's a good thing uh but so i'm not trying to be like um super critical about it but um yeah anyway but you know in, in terms of the future of of nfts and public art um i don't know it's a, it's a weird wild wild world i mean i could see it uh funding projects in really interesting ways actually you know like when you think about what DAOs and tokens and stuff like that like there people have been able to raise money for projects in in ways that are like kind of insane and that's yeah. just a huge issue for public art is just raising money <laughs> to do ambitious projects so I, there, so maybe something could happen like in that which we just have not seen yet but i'm you know that would be interesting all of this talk gets me really thinking about um you know, I run a I run a museum which has been around and concerned with with the history, right? And for every one person that I find that gives a even relative damn about history, there are a hundred people who just want to know roadmap utility, forward looking, and capture value in the present. Right. Um and I think this is like significant for a a taste and preference shift in I guess, you know, perhaps a, a younger generation, but it, I don't know, it just worries me because we end up moving just so far out ahead of ourselves. Um, and then people will promise a ton upfront to capture, you know, value upfront, but then right. they will become like disinterested and bored. And the people that kind of bought into that moment lose interest over time. Um, yeah. Which I think is, you know, which is where value starts to leave a lot of these PFP projects. Uh, yeah. And then the question is like, all for what? What exactly have we done? We haven't really changed any sort of, of narrative, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, it's like you can never know people's motivations entirely unless maybe they just tell you and they're really transparent about it. But I but I do think a lot of people that are buying into these kinds of things are buying in with the notion that they're going to sell out, sell it off at a, at an increase, right? Like it's, it's really, and that's part of that obsession with roadmap and utility and all of that. It's like, I'm only going to, I'm only buying this because I'm, I'm convinced that it's going to be worth more when I sell it. Right. So, and you know, with like re resale royalties and stuff like that, I think NFTs give, they start to create a path for that kind of activity to happen in a way that supports artists rather than like just bailing on artists, which I think is interesting. And it's like, that's a real bright spot of it. But um, I don't know. It, it does freak me out a little bit. I mean, if it's like, if, if everybody's sort of like, I'm not going to be the last one holding the bag, um, you're kind of setting up a dangerous situation, right? So, so let's like ground it in an example. And I think it would, I'm sure you, you probably coined this term ecto games. 
I did. Yeah. 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 It's a cool term. Um, so maybe for just like the people out there who have no idea what loot project is, yeah. maybe we can talk about loot and how that is really just kind of an inversion of the model. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Agdo games, I, I wrote this essay for outland called, uh, what's their game, uh, in December. And so I, I, I coined this term Ecto games as a way to, uh, describe these kind of a somewhat diverse group of, um, NFT projects that I was seeing that uh, displayed the qualities of games, but they didn't have the kind of unifying structure of a game. They didn't have rules. They didn't have um, uh, parameters and goals in the same way that that games do. And so it was like games would provide sort of half of the critical framework that we needed to like talk about what was happening, but it wasn't quite that. And, it, and they weren't quite art projects either. And they weren't quite um, performance or collectives or, or any, any, anything else. And so it seemed like there was space for maybe identifying it as, as something else. And I think that, um, the definition of, of that, or, or the parameters of what is or isn't an active game is kind of loose. And it's, you know, I like the idea that it's sort of open for debate, but I was, I was thinking through stuff like, um, loot for adventures, which is this NFT project, uh, you know, which launched, I think in September and really kind of, kind of blew up. And it's th these really simple on-chain NFTs that, they just generate a random, when they were minted, they generated a random list of um, adventure gear. And so it's something like you would see from Dunge in Dungeons and Dragons or a different fantasy game, you know, like Helm of Brilliance and like plus two sword or something like that. But it it has no game. Like even, even when it says like plus two sword, it's like plus two what? You know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. if you were to use it in Dungeons and Dragons, they would be like, there would be a rule set that would define like what that would mean and how that would like rank among other like, you know, items in the in the game world. But loot contains none of that. It's sort of just sort of game elements without a game. And so what that did was it it because of its popularity and its adoption, that sort of created a community that then is like backfilling a lot of those details. And so, I did, you know, like the NFTs don't even include illustrations of what these things look like. But of course, the community just rushed in and started illustrating like, well, here's what I think, you know, like the silken robes of whatever would look like, you know, and, and started, you know, making all of this cool stuff, which is something that you see happening in um, in game communities, right? In, in like D&D &D is the example I've been sure. using, but like really any games, it's like fan art. Um, you know, like fan fiction, like all this other, like people homebrew worlds, like people like form these let communities me, around this stuff. Let me just real quick put a side note in on Loot Project. Massive speculation, right? Yeah. Uh, some of the top bags were selling for, for six figures, nothing but black background, white text, and just a handful of words. Um, yeah. And but revolutionary concept, right? So I, I know that VC firms rushed in to grab as many of these that they could. I don't know, you know, how much that might have like affected the economics of people that were willing to build. And I'm so curious to see if this project ever, you know, comes to fruition as an actual playable game. Um, or and does it need to? That, that's the or thing. does it that's need thing. to? Or is it <laughs> yeah, just a collectible object at this? Well, point? and that was that was part of the the kind of question that um, gets raised in in the thing I wrote about that with Ecto Games, which I think is still an open question. Is like, is this really a different kind of cultural artifact, like a mm. um, a project that exhibits game like qualities but is not playable because it's not a game, it doesn't have rules, it doesn't have those parameters, or is it a state 
of a project that's on its way to becoming a game. So another example I give in the piece is um, Forgotten Runes Wizard Cult, which are cool, like little, you know, pixel art images of, of wizards and they're, you know, they have random attributes like other PFP projects, but, um, you know, and they're, they're kind of, they're kind of neat and they look like something you, that would be in like an eight bit video game or like an old Zelda game or something. Right. Um, it, you know, after I wrote the piece, shortly after it, they announced plans that they're developing a, a real game, like a game where if you hold, uh, you know, Forgotten Ruins Wizard, you could like, when you play the game, you get to play as like your um, NFT. So I was like, well, that's interesting because really you'd have to say now, well, at least once they release their game, Forgotten Ruins Wizard Cult is not an Ecto game. It's just a game, <laughs> right? Like right. there's no, you don't need a new name for that really. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, whatever blockchain integrated game or whatever. So there's something new there, but um I don't know, a game's a game. Um, so, you know, like, I, I, it's interesting to think about, like, are Ecto games just a state as a new way to develop games? Or are they something that can just exist as, like, a cultural form? Because I think, I think loot is actually more interesting um, in, its, in its pure state than it, than it would be if it's just sort of like, oh, look, you have a loot bag. So when you log into this MMO, you have, like, great stats. It's like, we've done that. Like, there's there's plenty of... You know, like there's plenty of um, that already exists. <laughs> I don't know. So here's here's my thought on loot. Final thought on loot is that I grew up playing a uh, text adventure game online called Vagabond's Quest. Um, yeah. And this was like, I don't even know when it would have been like early 90s, like chat room forum, random like roll dice outcome, wizards, mages, tracers, uh, yeah. warrior class. Um I loved that and I miss that game and they've tried a million times to revive it. But I think, you know, I'm waiting in 10 years where there is some interaction with some sort of, you know, AI machine learning bot that is kind of like handling this automatically. I don't particularly even need a uh, community to, to build it, but I feel like there will be automation with these objects within the metaverse uh, that will almost like revive and bring value back to these forgotten projects. Yeah. Have you played with AI Dungeon at all? I haven't, but that's, oh, uh, maybe I have. T tell me more the concept. Yeah, so it doesn't it's, have anything to do with NFTs, at least not at least not yet. It's But it uses like the, um, what is that called? Like GP, GPT-3 or GPT-2, yes. whatever, um, uh, text generation, like natural AI natural text generation through machine learning. Um, to run a text-based adventure game, like what you're talking Fun. about. And so you can pick different settings and you can be like, you know, like, can you just say what you do? Like I'm walking through the woods and then it will just tell you what happens next and then you can respond to it. And it gets real weird. It's, you know, it's not perfect. <laughs> it's not perfect. Like, like it'll, it, the story will loop and it will forget, you know, like stuff that happened. Um, yeah. But it's, um, it comes up with some real, real weird stuff. Well, almost it's only going to get better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. AI, right? A precursor of, of what's to come. So what else is, is interesting to you at this moment? Oh, man. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing I, another thing I wrote on um, Outland recently was um, um, I wrote about JPEG, which is a NFT curation platform and they're trying to sort of create a protocol for for curating nfts we had uh, maria paula on the show yeah yeah one of she's one of the, the people behind it and that's a super interesting project i mean it's 
it kind of decenters ownership because you know to to make these um, exhibitions, which are just you know sort of online exhibitions, and there's different ways you can format them. You just sort of drop in a, a link from OpenSea, and I think they're working on uh, other chains other than Ethereum. But for now, it's just like Ethereum stuff on OpenSea. You just kind of drop in the the link, and then you can write your own explanatory text if you want to, like a wall text, you know, at an exhibition. Um, it, but it, I said it decenters ownership because you can you can curate these you know exhibitions of NFTs that you don't own, and so it sort of gives this um, ability to like collect in a way that's uh, that's not commercially focused, uh, which I think is is interesting. But it's also it raises a bunch of interests, kind of strange and maybe thorny questions. Um, I mean, you know, one thing is. Uh, should you seek artist permission before you put them in like your JPEG exhibition, right? Uh, because it doesn't require that. Um, you just, you know, stuff is on OpenSea and you can just take it, you just take it from there and, and you can make an exhibition with it if you feel like it. But that was, you know, this thing I, I just thought it, it sort of raises that. I don't know, that, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but it raises like this interesting question of, um, you know, when, when, including someone's work in an exhibition is so seamless, like to the point where you're just copy and pasting a URL. Um, it kind of eliminates the need for collaboration. You know what I mean? Like if I were really curating something and I was putting you in a group show, uh, you know, we'd, ha we'd have to we'd have to talk about it, <laughs> right? Um, or I'd at least have to talk with the institute, an institution to, to loan, um, you know, the work that, um, that they might own or, or something like that. But it's, um, yeah, I don't know. So I think there's, the, there's like these interesting potential pitfalls there but i i also like i like what they're doing yeah i would always tell artists in the beginning when i was helping to onboard them that the only thing that you own is the token and you give the artwork to the internet to kind of do what you want right um and because because frankly uh if you are the person that is going around and asking for permission you will be you know like outworked or outproduced by you know the hundred other people that are not um right and and what we continue to see again and again is that like the right way of doing things almost never wins in this space right which what is, do you mean by that um it means at least everything is sacrificed for speed and responsiveness right. yeah. um and you know i have i have done both. I have done both. I've done exhibitions within the museum where I've gone and I've asked, you know, each artist and, you know, I've gone and done exhibitions where uh, we've, we've just selected and showcased the work. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a, there is an administrative challenge that if people, you know, if one person adheres to it, <laughs> there is something just inherent in the space and the internet and, and NFTs in which speed is valued above everything else and it's scary uh but i think it is kind of just the it's just the number one change that is affecting everybody uh and is it feels like the the ground is shaking or that we're all in kind of like this pit of quicksand in which we have to be responsiveness to the speed right yeah. of cultural transmission of um the way that we curate and exhibit and explain um and also the the the, the core problem with curation in my opinion 
because artists are creating on a speed which is unprecedented in a digital yeah. realm. And the curators have to be responsive to that speed and size and scale of this being kind of more of an open, accessible global movement. Well, yeah. And the speed thing is, the speed thing is, is really strange and it's, and it's, it's tough to, to approach or to figure out how to do with. I, I think that some artists, a lot of artists actually in this space are in a way moving too fast. Like they, um, they do like artists who I think do a really interesting project um, will turn around and do something else really quickly. And it, it's, I, I wonder, I don't know why, I, I wonder why that is. And it seems like it might be like people are worried because the market just fluctuates like crazy. And it's like Ethereum can be up or down like by a ton in a month or two. And so I think that people maybe are like, have this kind of like, this whole thing might evaporate. So I better like do something quickly, which is not a great way for an artist to operate. And from my perspective as a critic, I'm like, I'm just beginning to wrap my head around this thing you did. And now you're like pushing something else. And so I feel like if I wrote about the thing you did two months ago, it's like not, I have to like take into account the thing you just did. And it's, you know what I mean? And it's, and it's sort of like muddies. Like I, like I want, I find myself wanting artists to just do something that like can really stand and just like leave it for a little while. Right. Like, like give people time to, to digest it and to chew it. Um, because it's it's I think it undercuts that opportunity for more critical, um, I don't know, sort of, sort of a more considered critical approach when you're just like, all right, done with that one, onto this one, onto this one, onto this one, and it's like, just just slow, just take your foot off the gas for a minute, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, artists, but also it's like artists are making money in in new ways, and artists have to eat, and I totally get it. So, um, you know, I don't I don't want to be critical. Uh, critical of that but I mean look like I I empathize with them to because to feel and maintain relevance in like the discussion and with the algorithm requires this constant output and I call it almost like the you know the little b means of production in which you like you go into the studio you create everything you do not curate yourself at all and you just release it to the internet and you keep going yeah. um and this is a, you know, this is a rapper who will make 50 mixtapes in a year. Yeah. Uh, right. So I see the space shifting this way. It's hard. I see the way that people are like consuming data. I see how competitive like the attention economy is. Uh, and I also see like a lot of work that's presented without any sort of context, depth, uh, intention just leave it all open to interpretation yeah and it's impossible to ascertain value um yeah so but then of course you you look at the people who kind of like take a step back and do that and those people kind of stand as uh like unique and vanguards at least for me although again yeah, it's, you know, it's like a pool that's a, a million miles wide and, you know, like six inches deep. Yeah, totally. I think one thing that could really help, and I don't know what this looks like, because I'm sure it would look different than established structures, but I think it could really help the space if there were, um, well, institutions. I mean, you know, yours is, yours is one of the few, right? A, a museum to showcase this kind of work. 
but also um, to go along with that uh, events, like I've just been, I, I'm not in New York, so I haven't seen it yet, but just reading about the reception of the Whitney Biennial has been interesting and just kind of following online what um, what's on view and <coughs> excuse me, what people think. And I think that stuff like the Whitney Biennial is, is um, it's really nice. And I think that's, that's part of the solution to this problem I was identifying of like artists, just as soon as they get a project done, just turn around and do something else. You know, like if you have these kind of signposts, like these um, uh, events where it's like, okay, we're all going to come together and this, it's always going to be deeply flawed and we're going to like love to criticize it. But the idea of this is, this is a survey. This is like a, a, a chance for everyone to sort of take stock. Right. And of course, you know, um, the Whitney Biennial as sort of this survey of American art has been kind of like completely critically dismantled from without and within. And that's great. Um, but it at least still operates as this sort of like check-in point for, um, for everybody to be like, okay, like, what do we think? Like, what are, like, it's a way to trend spot. It's a way to, um, sort of take stock of like, well, you know, how, how have things like developed over the last two years or so? And of course, like things like the Venice Biennale and stuff like that are, um, are the same, but I feel like, uh, the NFTs sort of lack that. And, and part of it is like the, the not needing physical exhibition space is just totally changes things. So it's like, it could, and it takes on more of this internet, um, social media, um, it's not social media, but I think what it what it takes from it is like this idea of like a flow or a feed of information, right? Like content can just be constantly created and constantly shuffled past you. And when you're just on this infinite scroll, it's it's you like that's a design of of delivering art or content or information or whatever that is the exact opposite of the Whitney Biennial model, right? Like that's not scrolling. It's like we're waited two whole years, like everybody come take a look. We're all going to see the same thing. We're all going to have our own opinions and we're all going to debate the hell out of it. And then we'll do it again in two years. You know what I mean? Like, like having those like stopping points, um, I think are super important. And that seems to be really missing from this space. And it's probably just because it's so young, right? Like we don't, like you couldn't, you couldn't do like an every two year assessment of the current state of NFT art. Cause it's like two years ago, there was like <laughs> dramatically less, not that there was nothing, but there was dramatically less um, than there is now, obviously. So, you know, maybe those things will develop and maybe organizations like yours can, can are in a position to, to start to do that. But um, yeah, I think I, that that's part of what's missing. I think, you know, I think within this and with Dementi, we are like beginning to have that conversation and trying to like generally build the bridge to legitimacy. I think the number one question we get from outsiders looking in is where's the art, right? And I can show you where the art is, but it's not my prerogative or background or data set to like take it out and and push it up right i can sit on the front line of what i call kind of like this primordial ooze and i can generally say like one out of a hundred what i find interesting um so it is going to kind of have to take this multi-layered approach and i'm just curious if because it's you know so few and far i guess traditional art outsider critics to this space uh have really taken the time to dive in um, right because i think yeah not e- yeah go ahead well not, not a lot have taken the time to to dive in and and i think that i think that the the reason for that part of the reason for that is the idea of an nft as like a uh a, a contract a smart contract on um 
uh, a ledger that's you know like we we know what that is right um and the idea that that is like the a stand-in for a digital artwork usually a file usually um and it and it sort of you know functions as like this this um, method for exchange and keeping track of provenance, right? I think that the that that sort of um, I don't know how to put it like that conceptual framework for an artwork is interesting, but it's like only one of many 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 potential conceptual frameworks for an artwork. And so I think that for a lot of critics, they look at that and they're like, well, that's kind of interesting, but like. It would be just as interesting to like create a ledger on a bunch of three by five note cards and you know, like be all analog about it. And then it'd be or it'd be interesting to like do artworks that only last for five minutes and then self-destruct. You know, or that would be you know, like there's there's like it, it feels like um because an artwork we're at this place, <laughs> uh post-conceptual art where like um an artwork can be anything really that an, that an artist declares it to be that like that particular the particular conceptual framework of an nft is only like one of an infinite number of options of like how we could conceive of an artwork or exchange an artwork mm -hmm. and so i think that like and that's been something that's i've struggled struggled to like get my head around too of like how much am i willing to just sort of accept that as a given and then like jump down a level and then start to critique things like the images like if people have read what I've written, I don't, I've, I've like have written very little where I, I talk about the actual aesthetics of any of this. <laughs> like I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't do a lot with like, um, you know, thinking through wh what the images of NFTs actually look like. Um, and the reason for that is I think that sometimes the most interesting things about them are these, um, the conceptual framework of of what is or isn't the artwork and how it's exchanged or how it's how it's recorded and i think that you know the most interesting artists working in the space are the ones who are um questioning that and and messing with that like one of my absolute favorite projects is this um i'm not gonna remember the title but the artist's name is lauren lee mccarthy and she did this um project that's it's an nft it's on tezos but it's um, basically it's a contract that stipulates that every night before she goes to bed, she will text you if you're the owner and say good night. Wow. <laughs> and that's it. So it's and I love that as an NFT because like that sort of pushes against the boundaries of what an NFT can be. The it's a weirdly digital artwork because she's but it's a performance, obviously, but because she, she's yeah. using like text messaging. But it's not a digital artwork in what we think is it's not a file. Um, but also it's, it's a, it, like, it's like in a, in a kind of, um, Yoko Ono tradition of like the artwork is a contract. Like it's a, the artwork is like instructions and it's a commitment. The artwork is a commitment to like, I'm going to keep doing this. Um, and so that's interesting to me because that's sort of like, well, yeah, I guess that's what NFTs are. It's sort of like, uh, and if you can keep a contract safe, transparent and make, make the ownership clear to everyone, which is what NFTs are very, very good at, you know, whereas a slip of paper is like not good at that. Um, it's, it's like an, it's actually a really good use, a use case for the technology. Um, and it's not a coincidence that it's like completely different from, you know, uh, something that just points to the storage of a JPEG of a ape or whatever. Um, yeah, but, I, but I feel like there's artists like McCarthy are just like super rare. <laughs> there's not that many artists playing in the space, uh, in that way. I mean, there's a few and I'm, you know, I'm always on the hunt for them, but, uh, yeah.
I mean, that it's fascinating because originally the space was like that, right? It was very almost like post-form, post-aesthetic. Nothing really mattered but the exchange of the token yep. from artist to collector, right? right? And it was just like a social signifier of this web that we were uh, weaving of like interrelated actions marked by concrete timestamps, Um because then you always know, you know who was collecting, you know who was creating, you know what like the interpersonal dynamics of those people were. Uh, and I go back and like I'm, I'm waiting for a time where some machine learning can like go reconstruct the web of how these connections were built and how it related to like the overall growth of the space, right? Yep. I think in the beginning, there was just like, it was a lot of trouble, different outcast type people that would more identify with artists. But once people kind of saw Beeple's success, there were more like technicians or designers that started to utilize the medium. And then like, what is yeah. just like a beautiful image without an art story or an intent other than just to propagate the market? Right. Um, but that doesn't... Yeah, but that doesn't mean that the image should be discounted entirely. And I think I think part of um, part of what I was trying to do with the Ecto Games thing is is to point out that if you're using existing critical frameworks like contemporary art or uh, or a critical approach to games, you might be missing something because like those um, critical frameworks are based on past technologies like they're based on they're based on the past and so we can always carry forward some of that stuff but it's it's like we what we might need to do before we can have really productive critical conversations about this stuff is to delineate new categories and i think that i have a background also in like visual studies and and um you know, it's some media theory and that kind of thing. And so like, so, so my academic background is, is always broader than like, just like capital A art and like just, you know, strict art history. Sure. And so I, I think it might, you know, like, if you think about PFP projects, it might be more useful to think about like the history of television or, you know what I mean? Like, and like I was saying, like, um, like cartoon, like, you know, these cartoon, like uh, Tony the Tiger or something like that. Yeah. Like, and there are people who have written critically and, and thought very deeply about these things as cultural signifiers and and how they relate to exchange value and how they relate to identity and how they relate to politics and like there's there's tons of stuff happening there um in media studies and in visual studies and you know like visual culture um so i think that like for people to approach the nft space at least as it exists now with just a contemporary art lens it's like you're probably going to be missing you're, you're going to be lacking the critical frameworks needed for like a lot of what's happening uh because a lot of it i think it's like you're like I said, I think we need new critical frameworks, but I think that you get a better head start on that on that project um, if you start with visual culture and <laughs> actually start to look at like, you know, how do how do people like wh why were there kids when I was a kid? It was like you either like GI Joe or Transformers, and that meant something about your identity, right? Right, like that's that's much more of a clue between crypto punks and bored apes than anything that I know totally. uh, in in the in the world of like. Um, Andy Warhol or whatever. I will leave, I guess, last words for you, where people can find you, anything you want to share. Yeah, sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm there too much. Um, just My handle is just Kevin Beist, all one word, K-E-V-I-N-B-U-I-S-T. My website is kevinbeist.com. Yeah, and just um, like, like I said, I'm interested in what's happening here. I'm not like a crypto evangelist, but I'm also not a hater. I just I, I'm I'm curious about you know how we can learn to talk 
in, in more productive ways about what's happening in the space. Cool. I, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, yeah, thanks. This is fun. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Colborne Bell Museum of Crypto Art. This is NFT Sundays. Thanks, everybody. Breaking news. 